David would be the ideal figure of Israel's Messiah. Equally, he is, in this instance at least, the image of a hateful man who seeks the death of his perceived enemies as he is about to take his last breath. It is not a pretty sight. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In this week's podcast, we are going to deal with David's impending demise, his deathbed speech to Solomon, his son Adonijah's terrible miscalculation, and Bathsheba's being either incredibly naive or diabolically manipulative. All this intrigue occurs in 1 Kings chapter 2. The episode begins on a high note when we learn that David's death is nearing. Sensing that the end is near, David wants to speak to Solomon, who had recently been established as the new king. That's in verse 1. David's peroration is flawless. David acknowledges that his death is imminent, and he wants to encourage his son to be strong and demonstrate the sort of man he is. That's in verse 2. That is precisely one would expect a man like David to say to his son. Plus, David puts his remarks into an appropriate religious context. David admonishes Solomon to keep the charge of the Lord walking in the deity's ways and keeping the deity's statutes, commandments, ordinances, testimonies. In short, do everything written in Moses' Torah or law. That's in verse 3. This is the stock language of this material in former prophets. It oozes with the vocabulary and sentiments of the book of Deuteronomy. If Solomon does this, he will prosper in every aspect of his life. Not only that, Solomon's adherence to Moses' Torah would also underscore God's original agreement with David and his dynasty. Namely, if the kings follow God with all their heart and soul, then the Davidic dynasty will last in perpetuity. That's in verse 4. Had David ended this deathbed speech on that note, it would have ranked among the greatest talks between a dying father and the son who would succeed him. But the speech did not stop there. No sooner had David urged his son to be an exemplary king as he obeyed the Mosaic Torah, he asked Solomon to do something that was worthy of a dying mafia don. David reminded Solomon of how Joab had previously murdered Abner and Amasa. This was especially abominable to David's way of thinking because Joab had done this not during war, but during peacetime. To David, Joab's actions put the king in an extremely bad light. That's in verse 5. David did not beat around the bush. There was nothing subtle about what he wanted Solomon to do. Solomon was to make sure that Joab did not die peacefully in his old age. That's in verse 6. According to many translations, David wanted Solomon to carry out this contract, quote-unquote, according to your wisdom. But that is a poor translation. 
Instead, David wanted his son Solomon to use his wiles or his cleverness or his slyness to carry out what amounted to a hit. As David goes down his list, he mentions Barzillai, the Gileadite. David wants this man to be treated well, even getting a regular seat at Solomon's table. This would be a reward for the loyalty he had shown to David when fleeing from Absalom, the son who had rebelled against him. That's in verse 7. After this brief mention of someone David wanted to be treated well after he is gone, he brings up another man whom he wants to die prematurely. This man is Shimei, who cursed David mercilessly when the king was hightailing it out of town after Absalom, his own son, had fomented a rebellion. At the time, David ordered his men not to take vengeance on Shimei, thinking that God was behind the man's repulsive cursing. That story is in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 11-12. Obviously, David has reconsidered his prior gracious stance. Now he is hell-bent on settling the score. David had no trouble being completely legalistic in this matter. He acknowledged to Solomon that he had pledged not to take Shimei's life with the sword. But that did not deter him from condemning Shimei to die at Solomon's hand. He does not want Solomon to treat Shimei as guiltless. David counts on Solomon's craftiness to plan the man's death. Again, translating simply that Solomon was a wise man does not do justice to the nuance in this context. One way or another, David does not want Shimei to die as an old man. That's in verses 8 of 9 of chapter 2. It is all but impossible to avoid whiplash in the juxtaposition of David's lofty admonition to Solomon to adhere to every feature of the Mosaic Torah and the cold-blooded orders he gave to his son to carry out two murders. This happens on his deathbed, no less. This is after his heartfelt confession in the wake of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. David would be the ideal figure of Israel's Messiah. Equally, he is, in this instance at least, the image of a hateful man who seeks the death of his perceived enemies as he is about to take his last breath. It is not a pretty sight. At this point in the story, the narrator summarizes David's reign in an understated way. David died and was buried in Jerusalem, now known as the city of David. He had ruled for forty years, seven of which were when he was co-ruler and stationed in Hebron. Solomon succeeded him and sat on David's throne. Right then we are told that Solomon's kingdom was firmly established. Conspicuous for its absence, there is not a single reference to God or God's will. This is not a good omen for kingship in Israel. If we were expecting a gentler or more understanding approach from Solomon, 
we will be sorely disappointed. Adonijah made the mistake of underestimating what sort of ruler Solomon would be. Keep in mind that Adonijah was Solomon's older brother and had stepped into the vacuum created when David was deathly sick. We dealt with this story in podcast number 48. After Solomon consolidated his power and sat firmly on the throne, Adonijah sought an audience with Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. When he arrived, she wanted to know whether his intentions were peaceful. He said that they were. That's in verses 13 and 14. Then the queen mother wanted to know the purpose of Adonijah's visit. He pointed out that very recently the Israelite kingdom belonged to him and that the whole country expected him to rule. However, in Adonijah's mind, the Lord had other plans and circumstances allowed Solomon to take over the royal reigns. That's in verse 15. Keep in mind that was Adonijah's viewpoint, not necessarily that of the narrator. At that point, Adonijah wants Bathsheba to help him fulfill a request. He asks her to go to Solomon and speak on his behalf. Specifically, Adonijah wanted Solomon's permission to have Abishag become his wife. Of course, Abishag had been the gorgeous woman that had nursed David when he was ill. That is the first part of chapter 1 of 1 Kings. This part is from verse 16 of chapter 2. Without hesitation, Bathsheba agreed to do this for Adonijah's sake. It is unclear why Adonijah made this request. Did he think that obtaining a wife that had been so close to his father would be fair compensation for losing his claim to the throne? Or was there a more sinister motive involved? That is, was Adonijah trying to garner support around the palace staff? To our knowledge, Abishag had few connections that would have been politically useful for Adonijah. All she had ever done was to minister to David. Not a word is issued about any friends or operatives that she might have known. We can only speculate. What about Bathsheba? Did she figure this was an honest and innocent request from a disappointed man whose political ambitions had been crushed? Did she read between the lines and conclude that Adonijah surely had an ulterior reason for this odd request? If so, was she being disingenuous by agreeing to speak to Solomon on Adonijah's behalf? knowing full well that Solomon would see this as a naked attempt to usurp power? The text is too cryptic to answer these questions confidently. In any case, Bathsheba now seeks an audience with Solomon. The audience between Bathsheba and Solomon at court was conducted with pomp and circumstance. It was a formal state occasion, not an intimate chat between a mother and her son. That's in verse 19. She made it known that she had a request and wanted it granted even before Solomon knew what it was. That's verse 20. The king invited her to make her request, prefacing his invitation by promising that he would by no means refuse her. 
Getting right to the nub of the matter, she asks straight out that Solomon allow his brother Adonijah to marry Abishag. That's in verse 21. Rightly or wrongly, Solomon's reaction revealed that he suspected this was an insidious effort on Adonijah's part to gain political leverage. Even though Bathsheba had not said that the request came at Adonijah's prompting, Solomon assumed that that was the case. The king saw this in stark political terms. To Solomon, Adonijah's asking to web Abishag could not be distinguished from his effort to take over the kingdom. Solomon knew the score. Adonijah was his older brother and therefore had a claim on the throne. Besides, Adonijah had both religious and military support with Abiathar the priest and Joab the military officer. That's in verse 22. In Solomon's estimation, Adonijah was not innocent at all. Indeed, he was trying to make an end run around what had transpired to place Solomon on the throne. Completely dismissing what the king had said to Bathsheba about granting her request, Solomon swears Adonijah had foolishly crossed the line, a move that would cost him his life. That's in verse 23. According to Solomon, the Lord had established his kingship and placed him on the throne of David, his father. He would represent the Davidic dynasty. Adonijah had sealed his fate by trying to challenge Solomon, who vowed that his brother would die this very day. That's in verse 24. Not wasting any time, Solomon sent his servant Beniah to deal with Adonijah. Beniah assassinated Adonijah on the spot. There was no discussion, no due process, no consultation with prophets or priests. Solomon had a job to do and did it without hesitation. One more son of David died a violent death. This may not have been the outcome Adonijah anticipated when he asked for Abishag to become his wife, but it was the only outcome Solomon considered. Solomon need not worry about his brother any longer. Having dispatched Adonijah, Solomon set his sights on Abiathar, the priest who had supported his older brother in his quest for the throne. Solomon decided not to kill the priest at this time because Abiathar accompanied the Ark of God when David was king and because he shared in David's afflictions. That's in verse 26. However, Solomon did expel Abiathar from being a priest of the Lord. When he did this, Solomon, evidently unwittingly, fulfilled the judgment against Eli's house, which an unnamed prophet pronounced so very long ago. That story is in 1 Samuel 2, verses 27 through 36. One way or another, though, Abiathar was done with any priestly duties. Solomon was, in a word, cleaning house. Then Solomon turned his attention to Joab, the military man who had supported Adonijah in his bid for the throne. Joab saw the writing on the wall and fled for his life. 
he grabbed the horns of the altar, an action that was supposed to make one immune to violence. This was an ancient form of sinking sanctuary in a holy place. That's in verse 28. Once Solomon learned of what Joab had done, the king ordered Benaiah to strike the man down. Benaiah, however, was reluctant to violate the code of honoring the safety of someone who had grabbed the horns of the altar. To avoid that violation, Benaiah ordered Joab to come forth and die like a man. That's in verse 29. Joab refused, daring Benaiah, and by extension Solomon, to go against the taboo of killing someone who was supposed to be inviolate. Benaiah told Solomon what Joab had said. That's in verse 30. Solomon was unmoved. He told Benaiah to go ahead and comply with Joab's wishes. If the man wanted to die on the altar, so be it. Solomon reasoned that Joab had done enough during his time with David to deserve such a fate. Joab had killed Abner and Amasa, both of whom in Solomon's estimation were better people than Joab. In short, Joab had brought this violence on himself because of the way he conducted himself when he was a military officer in David's army. That's in verses 32 and 33. After Solomon's little speech, Benaiah killed Joab, notwithstanding his still holding on to the horns of the altar. Solomon would brook no rivals and would countenance no perceived enemies. Joab later was buried in his own house. That's in verse 34. Solomon also took care of an administrative task by appointing a new priest, Zadok, to take the place of Abiathar. One way or another, Solomon was making sure that anyone in his administration would without question know to whom he or she would be loyal. Solomon was leaving no stones unturned. For the time being, Shimei had been put under a kind of house arrest from Solomon's orders. That's in verse 36. He was told in no uncertain terms not to leave the house, or Solomon's leniency would no longer be in effect. That's in verse 37. Not having much choice, Shimei agreed to these strict conditions. Unfortunately, three years later, two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, the king of Gath. Naturally, Shimei saw this as an economic hardship, so he decided to go and retrieve these two men. That's in verses 39 and 40. It did not take long for Solomon to get wind of what Shimei had done. When Shimei returned to Jerusalem, he was immediately summoned by Solomon. The king reminded him of the conditions of his house arrest. Solomon was uninterested in the reasons why Shimei had left Jerusalem temporarily and gave the man no credit for coming right back to Jerusalem once he had retrieved his two servants. Instead, Solomon noted that Shimei had violated his oath, an oath he had made to the Lord. Plus, he had disobeyed a direct order from the king. As though that were not enough, Solomon went on to point out the invective Shimei had uttered in David's presence. From Solomon's perspective, the Lord was making Shimei pay for what he had done to David. For good measure, Solomon asserted that he himself would be blessed 
and that David's dynasty would be established before the Lord forever. That's in verse 45. There was nothing to say after that. Solomon issued one more command to Benaiah, who summarily executed Shimei. That's in verse 46. And that was the manner in which Solomon's kingship was established. If this were an ordinary story of an ancient Near Eastern kingdom and the political upheaval that typically was experienced in the transition of power, we might find this episode dramatic, intriguing, sometimes appalling, but also riveting. But this is not an ordinary story of just any run-of-the-mill nation. This is a biblical story about Israel, God's elect people. Should we not expect something more of such a story? The more this episode mirrors the politics as usual in any other country, the more our disappointment rises. Granted, God's name is invoked more than once, but only characters in the drama appeal to God or divine purposes. At no time does the narrator inform us whether God's will is, in fact, being accomplished. No character ever seeks God's counsel or even consults with a priest or a prophet. The religious personnel involved in the story side with the rivals seeking the throne. But there is no way to ascertain which side is supposed to win. In the end, the cleverest political strategy prevails, and those able to exercise the rawest forms of political power and the violence that accompanies it come out on top. This story is as ordinary as it gets. But that is perhaps the point. From the beginning of kingship in Israel, we knew it was a flawed institution. The temptation to mirror all the other nations was too strong. In this particular story, it is hard to discern any difference between Israel and any other nation. There is not a scintilla of evidence that indicates that Israel was conducting their affairs differently because of the covenant that God had made with them. This story is not only business as usual, but politics as usual. To be sure, God can use even flawed and corrupt people to push a divine agenda. But God would surely like not to have to stoop down that far every time. Before this grand story concludes, the kingship will crumble. This particular episode underscores why it is headed in that direction. At the end of this podcast, let me encourage you to go to my email, fspina106 at gmail.com, and give me any questions you have via email. Also, go to my website, faspina.com, and let me know what your email is, because soon I will learn how to do the Facebook group, and that will be the form of our many courses. I'm learning that as we speak. And keep in mind that we're going to be taking off the week of Christmas, and then we'll be starting right back. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, 
All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.